Welcome to episode 67 of the first 40 miles. If you're new to backpacking, or if you're hopelessly in love with someone who wants you to love backpacking, then this podcast is for you. We'll talk about the essentials, how to lighten your load, and how to make the most of your time on the trail. I'm your host, Heather Legler. And I'm Josh Legler. And this is The First 40 Miles. Today on The First 40 Miles, a three-letter abbreviation that may make all the difference on your next adventure. Then, get your feet ready with five simple steps. Get it? Five steps. Steps, huh? <laughs> On the Summit Gear Review, we'll share a luxury that I am not planning on giving up anytime soon. And we'll come full circle with a hack that includes today's mysterious three-letter abbreviation. All this, and that's about it. Today on The First 40 Miles. All right, what's this abbreviation you're talking about? I really hope you know what it is because I gave you the show notes and I was hoping you would explain it to the entire audience. It's VBL. V as in Victor. B as in Bravo. L as in lasagna. Lasagna. I can't think of the... Victor Bravo lasagna just doesn't sound... Is this a mountain house meal? No, VBL is... Vapor Barrier Liner, and it's actually a way to trap heat. Yeah, Vapor Barrier Liner is a completely waterproof layer of your clothing or gear. So imagine, I don't know, like when I was a kid, I had a vinyl raincoat. You know those yellow raincoats? Except so mine, cute. <laughs> mine was gray and blue, but same material, and not one single raindrop or even one portion of a raindrop was going to get through that vinyl raincoat. But that also meant that not one single molecule of sweat or perspiration from my body was going to get out of that raincoat. And so typically when we think of these sorts of materials that make a vapor barrier liner, we think clammy and sweaty because it traps all of our body-generated moisture inside. It's also the same thing that happens when you put on latex gloves to do household chores. Like say you're washing the dishes, your hands start to get kind of clammy and wet in there, and you think, oh, was there a rip in the glove? What happened? It's especially disconcerting when you're cleaning the bathroom, and you're like, why am I feeling wetness inside my glove? This is gross. But um, yeah, the heat and the moisture get trapped in that vapor barrier liner. So now that we've really explained the downsides of vapor <laughs> barrier liners, why are we bringing them up on a backpacking podcast? Good question. Is there a use for VBL on the trail? Andrew Skirka has a great article about exactly when VBL is the right thing for you. And I will put a link to his article in today's show notes at thefirst40miles.com slash 067. In his article, he listed three potential benefits of wearing a vapor barrier liner. The first benefit is that the moisture from your body will not get to your outer insulating layers. And the reason this is a benefit is say you're on a multi-day trip. Without the vapor barrier liner, your perspiration makes its way to your outer insulating layers. And then because the weather is so cold and probably humid at the same time, the dew point is so low that the water that gets out to your outer layers just stays there. It doesn't evaporate into the atmosphere. And then what happens is you take off those clothes at the end of the day, 
you put them back on the next morning and they are wet. And so now they no longer work as insulating layers. And they're never going to dry out until you get to a warm place or a dry place. So you're on this multi-day trip and you're stuck with wet fabric. Yeah, this is a real problem with down. Because once down gets wet, all the little down fibers will stick together. The second benefit of a vapor barrier liner that Andrew Skirka mentions is that it keeps you aware of your perspiration rate. And this is important if you're out in cold weather doing high exertion activities like snowshoeing or, or you know, trudging through the snow, building an igloo, um, all these things. You could be sweating a lot more than you realize. If you have a vapor barrier liner, that sweat starts to build up under the liner and you recognize pretty quickly that you're sweating. And so what you do is you open up your vapor barrier liner a little bit to let the moisture get out. And that is safer than not recognizing how much you're sweating and allowing all that sweat to go into your outer layers where it will just stay there and never go away. So it's a little bit of protection on the trail. It's a signal, a feedback oh, that's signal. That's a good, good way to put it, yeah. And the third benefit of a vapor barrier liner is that you won't lose so much heat through evaporation. When we lived in Salt Lake City, which was a dry climate, we had a swamp cooler on our house, or in other words, an evaporative cooler. And it used the evaporative effect of water to cool the air. That's what's happening when you perspire. Even on a cold day, you've got moisture coming off your body, and as the water evaporates, it has a cooling effect. So the vapor barrier liner prevents the water from getting out to where it would evaporate, and therefore you don't have that evaporative heat loss. Well, right after I came back from my first backpacking trip, I was just on fire and I was doing tons of research and I heard about this VBL that could make it so you could sleep warmer and it would make it so your fingers wouldn't freeze and all sorts of benefits. And so before I even understood the appropriate uses for VBL and the benefits, I went out on a little overnight camping trip with the kids and I thought, oh, I'm going to try out VBL. So I got in my sleeping bag and then I pulled on a bivy over the sleeping bag thinking, oh, that'll trap heat and I'll be warm. And I made a mistake and I woke up the next morning and my sleeping bag was actually physically wet. That's how much moisture your body puts out. Not only was the sleeping bag wet, but the, the liner was wet that was touching the outside of the sleeping bag. So it definitely pays to understand the power of VBL before you try to harness it. You don't want to use it in the wrong way. So that was a good example of the many situations where VBL is not the right answer, not the right thing to do. Really, most of the time, it's to your benefit to allow your body moisture to evaporate into the air and get through your layers of clothing. But there are certain situations where the VBL makes sense and you also have to do it the right way. So the situations are where it's quite cold. So think about uh, close to freezing or below freezing because when you get to that temperature level, your body moisture is not going to evaporate when it gets to your outer layers. It's just going to stay there. And I think vapor barrier liners are also helpful in very, very wet situations. In particular, I'm thinking of, for example, building an igloo where your hands are going to be touching frozen water that's kind of melting as you touch it. That's pretty much the same as just dipping your hands into an icy river. And so in that case, the amount of perspiration from your hands is still going to be less 
than if you were to expose them to all of that moisture coming in from the ice that you're touching. When you wear a vapor barrier liner, it should typically be under your insulating layer. So in your sleeping bag example, the vapor barrier liner should have been inside of your sleeping bag. You still would have built up all that moisture, but your sleeping bag would have stayed dry, which was the point, because then you could use your sleeping bag again the next night. And then I could have at least opened up the vapor barrier liner to let out that excess moisture and let it evaporate some. Yeah, or use a towel to wipe it down. That would be easy enough. Getting the moisture out of your sleeping bag, pretty tough. So keep it inside of the insulating layer. However, I would really go with a base layer under the vapor barrier liner for comfort. So the base layer gives you a little bit of a buffer between your skin and that vapor barrier liner that's going to get moist and it's going to get clammy. And it's going to feel all icky against your skin. So that's the setup I would use. Um, cold weather, near freezing or below freezing, wear a base layer, then the vapor barrier liner, and then your outer insulating layer. Sounds like Punxsutawney Phil did not see his shadow, and so we are in for an early spring. So you may have to save this little VBL tip for next winter. Just catalog it away or refer back to this episode, and uh, we'll also have the link to Andrew Skirka's explanation of VBLs on the show notes. For today's top five list, we have the top five ways to prep your feet for a backpacking trip, and none of them involve a pedicure at a salon. It's a do-it-yourself thing. We like DIY. Your feet are the ones that take the brunt of the abuse on the trail, and your shoulders may feel a little sore, but you know, everything, all those kinks usually get worked out overnight or they get worse overnight, depending on your <laughs> sleep system. But it really pays to baby your feet before a backpacking trip. If nothing else, it'll give you some peace of mind knowing that you've taken care of any issues and your feet are in the best condition of their lives. So the number one way to prep your feet for a backpacking trip is to introduce your feet to your shoes. This means you look them straight in the eyelet and you say, hello, shoe, I'm foot. <laughs> Back in the olden days, when shoes were made of rawhide and concrete, it was really important to be able to take a few weeks to break those shoes in. I mean, break them in. It was a real chore and have the blisters and then have calluses by the time you go out. That's not really the way that it works anymore. Shoes nowadays are lighter and more flexible, and they really require less of a breaking in period. The most important thing is that your feet get to know your shoes and that you're comfortable with the amount of space that your feet take up in the shoe, and that's including your liner sock and your hiking sock, and then the end of the day swelling. The number two way to prep your feet for a backpacking trip is to strengthen them, and you do this with varied terrain. The two of us go out for a walk most days, and it's just a quick half-mile walk all on streets and sidewalks. And that's not really what we're talking about. That's good. And getting out and walking definitely is beneficial for your feet. It helps you prepare for a backpacking trip. But you can do better than that by going out and walking on uneven terrain, varied terrain. There's a gravel road uh, not too far from our house, so if we were to walk down that gravel road, our feet would get a lot more exercise than when we walk on the flat sidewalk. And then if we can walk across some grass and up and down some hills, all of that variety prepares your feet better for what they're going to experience on the trail. 
There's some controversy right now as to whether mid-rise boots that are supposed to provide stability to your ankle really do anything at all, whether they prevent more injuries. And I think it just makes sense to spend some time strengthening your ankles and your feet so that you don't have to worry about rolling ankles. That'd be weird to see ankles rolling down the hill. (laughs) I think it means something else. But yeah, you just want to have the strength built up in your foot so that you can have more stability. And that's going to make it so you don't roll your ankle. Yeah. So in that decision between strengthening and supporting, I would say the first choice should be to strengthen your feet, strengthen your ankles, only support when you have to, because that support is going to weaken your feet. And that's become kind of a big thing for me because we got zero shoes last year. And these are minimalist shoes that are just a sole with a couple straps to keep it attached to your foot. I feel like they've really given my feet the opportunity to experience the ground underneath them and to respond to the varied textures and terrain and to strengthen my feet. And they're just more adept than they were. The number three way to prepare your feet for a backpacking trip is super simple. And I was surprised what a huge difference this made in my experience. Just trim your nails. On our first trip, I remember getting kind of that bruised feeling on both of my big toes. And I looked and I realized that I hadn't trimmed my nails. And you just trim them straight across. You don't have to like trim it all nice and rounded because that could actually lead to some ingrown toenails. Another benefit to trimming your nails is that your nails won't wear a hole in the tip of the socks. You don't want to have a hole in your nice wool socks. Yeah, true. And that first day of our Mount Hood hike was 10 miles of downhill. And that's why you really noticed the bruising on your toes. Ah. You were pushing your feet against the end of your shoes step after step all day. And those toenails just, they transfer the pressure right back to your toe. Yeah, runners have the same issue um, with their toenails. They get black toenails. I bet some hikers have experienced that too. Boy, it does not feel good to have bruised toes. So just trim your toenails straight across. And for that reason, it may be a good idea to bring along a multi-tool with a nail file on it or a wood and metal file. Any kind of file to make sure that your nails stay nice and trim. The number four way to prep your feet for a backpacking trip is to take care of any health issues. Plantar warts sometimes can go unnoticed for a long time, but I've experienced one that felt like the worst bruise of my life on the bottom of my foot. It was extremely painful. That's not something you want every single step. You want to get rid of that, take care of it, and that's something you can easily do at home using salicylic acid wart remover. Ingrown toenails are another health issue that may get worse while you're on the trail, easily fixable, either on the trail or when you're at home and you just want to stick some cotton balls, just a teeny, sorry, not cotton balls, a tiny piece of cotton underneath the ingrown toenail. I'm not a podiatrist. I don't even play one on TV. So if you really do have foot issues that go beyond over-the-counter type stuff, then go see someone who touches feet all day long and they can tell you exactly what what you should do to prepare for your trip. These health issues might not be very noticeable in day-to-day life because you're not putting 10 miles a day on your feet and you don't have an extra 30 or 40 pounds on your back. 
But once you get out backpacking and the situation changes, then like you said, that wart was not a big deal until you put extra weight on it and you pounded on it for 10 miles a day. So good to take care of those off trail before you get out there. And the number five way to prep your feet for a backpacking trip is to baby your tough feet. Your feet get so neglected, they're so far away, so very far away. And this means that if you have dry or cracked heels, it might be time to soften those up a little bit. So an easy way to do this is to soak your feet in warm water or just after your shower um, and your feet are already all nice and wrinkly, grab a pumice stone, which is a pretty cheap little stone. Pumice stone isn't like a just a girl thing either. You know what a pumice stone is, right? I know what it is. Okay. Does that mean I've ever used one? Probably not, but I've walked barefoot on concrete. Ah, is that same, about the same thing, yeah. If you don't have a pumice stone, I guess you could just Walk barefoot on concrete. Drag your foot along some concrete. That's the men's version. Yeah, that works. Yeah, that's manly. That is so manly. So yeah, then after you're done exfoliating your feet, that means getting all the dead skin off, especially on your heels and maybe your your big toe, that's a good time to put on some balm. And Badger makes some really great foot balm. It has extra virgin olive oil, beeswax, rosemary, peppermint, cardamom, tea tree, eucalyptus, and balsam fir. So you're going to smell like a forest after you use it. But it's just softening. Like use it right after you exfoliate your feet and then it'll trap all that moisture in and your feet will feel different. Perhaps like they did when you were first born. Wow. It's that amazing. It's quite the promise. I don't know, but it is good to use some kind of balm to trap the moisture. Anyway, technically it's still winter, so you may not have a backpacking trip planned for a couple more months, so this might be a good thing to do in the meantime to prepare. For today's Summit Gear Review, we will be reviewing the Zippo Hand Warmer. Last summer I was at the Outdoor Retailer Show and I stopped by the Zippo booth and I asked the same thing that I ask at every booth. What do you have that backpackers would love? Like what's relevant? What would they just get a kick out of? What's what's new? And these great guys at Zippo showed me some really cool lighters. And I was like, ah, yeah, that's that's cool. I love it. It's relevant, you know, fire and everything. And that was the end of our conversation. And a few months later, I was at a Knights of Columbus rummage sale of all places. Just kind of rummaging. And I saw this little metal thing and it had a sign on it that said antique hand warmer, $2. And it looked really cool because it was made of chrome and it had little holes in it. And it looked like it was from probably the 1960s or something. Like it had the original manual in it and it had this little pouch that kind of smelled like it had been in someone's basement for a long, long time. Anyway, I picked it up and ended up purchasing it. And when I got home, I did a little more research and I found out that this hand warmer, it was a different brand. It was called the John E. Catalytic Hand Warmer. 
I found out that these things stay warm for hours and hours and hours, an entire day of warmth. And I also found out that this catalytic hand warmer that I found at the rummage sale wasn't old fashioned at all. It was actually developed in 1923 in Japan and it came to the United States in 1950. To me, that's not very long ago. So they're a modern invention. And Zippo makes one that puts out some serious heat. I was going to say serious, mysterious. <laughs> I don't know why I wrote that there. <laughs> because it rhymed and it sounded cool. Oh, did I finish my story about Zippo? So as soon as I found out that Zippo made one of these little hand warmers, I was like, why weren't those guys at the Zippo booth as excited as I was when I found this hand warmer? It stays hot for 12 hours and it uses just basic lighter fluid. So my question for you, Josh, is how does something with only a little bit of fuel burn for 12 solid hours? These catalytic hand warmers seem magical because you put a little bit of lighter fluid inside of them and you light them, but you don't really see a flame. And then for hours and hours, they're putting out heat. Uh, the key is that they're catalytic. So it's like the catalytic converter in your car. The engine has fuel that goes into it. Some of the molecules of fuel don't get ignited. They don't get combined with oxygen to burn. They come out in the exhaust pipe and they come into the catalytic converter and that's where they get combined with oxygen. So they burn. And the reason they burn in the catalytic converter is because of a catalyst. It has platinum inside of it. And it just so happens that when you take hydrocarbons and oxygen and you put them together in the presence of platinum, they will combust at a lower heat than they would otherwise. Platinum is the catalyst. It's what makes the reaction happen, even though the platinum itself does not get used in that reaction. So it really is pretty magical, I it think. It really is. And you don't see a flame. All you see is this almost imperceptible orange glow coming from inside the hand warmer. And that's the oxygen combining with the lighter fluid and burning, but burning at a much lower temperature than it usually would because of the presence of the catalyst. So the Zippo hand warmers come in a 12-hour or 6-hour, and the 12-hour is about the size of a cell phone, and the 6-hour is about the size of a smooshed fun-sized candy bar, almost about half the size of the 12-hour hand warmer. And I don't say this about very many pieces of backpacking gear, but this is probably the sexiest piece of backpacking gear you will ever own because it's sleek, it's shiny, it's made of chrome, and it has curved edges. And not only that, but it fits perfectly in a little black velvet drawstring pouch. So as far as utility, it burns low and slow, and it actually has a heat that grows the longer it burns. And even though it is a low and slow heat, you'll want to keep the hand warmer in the black pouch because it does get hot enough to potentially burn you, especially if you have it against your skin. So just keep it in the pouch. Um, I was kind of concerned about maybe the faint lighter fluid smell permeating my clothes or my gear, but really the smell is the strongest right next to the hand warmer and it dissipates fairly rapidly. So if you're on the trail and you're using this hand warmer, it's probably not gonna bother you. If you're sleeping with this hand warmer, eh, it, it may bother you, it is noticeable, so if you're bothered by that, then you may want to look at other forms of hand warmers. 
I found that the best places for me to use the hand warmer were in my sleeping bag, like just throwing it down in the foot box. And then I also just used it in my jacket pocket. Although I have the 12 hour and the six hour, I really love the size of the 12 hour. It's only 2.7 ounces. And while the smaller one seems like it would make a lot of sense for backpacking because it's smaller and lighter, I just loved the footprint of the 12 hour one. As far as maintenance goes, you'll just need to fill it with lighter fluid, and both the 12 hour and the 6 hour come with a tiny little pitcher to refill the hand warmer. It's not 100% necessary. You can basically just eyeball how much fuel to put in. Now, to use your Zippo hand warmer, there's a little bit of a trick to it, it has some layers to it. So, on the outside, there is a lid, and the lid has some holes in it, so you'll want to remove that. And then there's another little layer that you remove and that exposes the hole where you add the lighter fluid. So you would put the lighter fluid in and then put the cap on. And to light it, you don't wanna hold the flame in one place. You kind of wanna move it back and forth because you're just trying to get the, uh, it's the vapor to catch, not catch on fire, but the vapor to catalyze. And then once you see just a really faint orange glow, then you can put the cover back on. And it does take a little bit of practice. It helps to watch a YouTube video or two. It's really not rocket science. Actually, I don't know what it is. Maybe it really is rocket science because it's really cool. And it stays hot for 12 hours. I picked up the large one at Ace Hardware for $12. On Zippo's website, I think they have it listed for more. So um, definitely go check out your local hardware store and see if they have it. And then, of course, the lighter fluid. It's only a few dollars, maybe 2 or $3. And it's such a secure bottle that you can bring that with you on your backpacking trip. Is every lighter fluid bottle secure or just that brand? Well, it's funny. Ronsonol is one of the brands and then Zippo is the other brand. But if you look at the bottom of the Ronsonol bottle, it says Zippo Manufacturing Company. So they're really the same thing. This is a five fluid ounce bottle and I didn't have any leakage issues with this bottle at all. As far as trial went, I had two worries when I was using this 12 hour and the six hour Zippo hand warmer. I thought that if I used it in my tent that I would die of carbon monoxide poisoning. But really it's such a small amount of fuel that is being consumed over such a long period of time that if there were carbon monoxide coming from this, it would dissipate and not be an issue. And I couldn't find anything in the in the instructions that came with this or anything online that said that carbon monoxide was a risk with these hand warmers. Now that I've terrified everyone, <laughs> I'm pretty sure it's not a risk. But that was something that I was concerned about. But I, I was able to sleep with the hand warmers and I woke up the next morning. My second worry was that I thought the lighter fluid would spill in my pack. And that wasn't an issue at all. We took this on our Redwoods trip and ended up going up and down in elevation. It was, what, a five-hour drive to the Redwoods and, um, yeah, no issues at all. So were you worried about uh, fuel coming out of your bottle of lighter fluid? Right. Okay. Yeah. What about the Zippo hand warmer itself? After you've filled it up um, with some fluid, then did you ever have any issues where, for example, if you tipped it upside down, fuel would drip out? Absolutely not. 
Well, it has something inside of it that absorbs the fuel, kind of like a sponge. And of course, it's impregnated with the catalyst, which is why it works. But Yeah, um, there's no leakage at all. Okay, good. Now, it does take a while for the heat to kind of build up. And when you first get it lit, you're going to be like, wow, this is it. This is all it can do. And then over time, it actually increases in heat output and becomes really hot. <laughs> it's such a simple piece of gear to use. And I don't think I will ever take a backpacking trip without it because I don't like being cold. And this is just one of those things that does its job. It does it well, and it does it for a long time. We will have the link to more information on the website so you can go check it out. And we'll have that at thefirst40miles.com slash 067. For today's backpack hack of the week, VBL gloves. What does VBL stand for again? Vapor barrier liner. liner. Well, if you want to test out the VBL principle for your winter outdoor recreation activities, just grab a pair of latex or nitrile gloves to wear under your wool gloves. Just remember that you'll continue to sweat and you will probably need to ventilate, which means taking off the gloves every now and then and maybe giving them a good shake. And if that works for you and it keeps your hands warm, then you can start to experiment with other VBLs in the wintertime and see if you want to incorporate the principle into other pieces of gear, like maybe headwear or clothing, your socks, or even your sleep system. Gloves are a great way to start experimenting with vapor barrier liners because you can get them off so easily. So if you do start to sweat too much, you just pull off the gloves, air them out, put them back on. You can kind of play with them that way. They're extremely useful in very cold, wet situations. And we'll leave you today with a little trail wisdom from our good friend on the trail, Gary Snyder. He said, Nature is not a place to visit. It is home. That's it for today. Thank you for listening. If you liked this podcast, follow us on Facebook and Twitter or review us on iTunes. We'll see you next time on The First 40 Miles. the little the little fingers i don't know what you'd call them the little branches on the down tree fibers all the little <laughs> yeah but like they're not going to look at you weird if you buy a pumice stone i think it's made out of volcanoes do you want to <laughs> say that we're moving on to the gear review like i, I did did for to the for the summit gear oh, review wow. we i completely missed it zippo where was i hand warmer <laughs> <laughs>